We're taking our Bibles and join me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have the sermon notes that are located in the bulletin, just raise your hand. The ushers will hand you so you can follow along a little bit easier. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at 9 and 10 quickly this morning and get an overview. But let me just walk backwards with you a little bit. We talk about many times the good old days. And we talk about how things used to be. Now seriously, let's ask this question. Do you want to go back to some of those things in the good old days? Would you like to go back where you rode like this? Or is it easier to travel to go like this? Okay? I know it's more expensive. I understand that. But when you talk about traveling six days from Baltimore to Philadelphia, I'd rather take the car okay, than be on some donkey or some horse. The good old days. The good old days when surgery was done without being knocked out. The good old days when, you know, the surgery, Doc Baker and those at the little house, you know, they didn't have the same sanitary issues that we deal with today. And so the good old days where they can do the surgeries that are absolutely amazing, the heart stents, the different things, the treating with the cancer, in and out and go quickly. Sometimes the good old days aren't so good. Here's one for you. The good old days of telephone and communication. Do anybody remember party lines? Okay. Some of, some of the young people are going, they had a party online? That sounds like a good deal. It didn't work that way, not in the good old days. The good old days, you didn't have that information at hand. And so in many ways, we're dealing with modern technology, and there's a lot of good things about it. And so there's a lot of benefits to it. There's dangers and challenges, but there's a lot of good things that you have a lot more information at hand, and you don't have to wait for somebody else to get off the phone to be able to talk to, to that other party or be fearful that they're listening in on your conversation. Well, the Jews were having a problem. When he's writing the book of Hebrews, there's a number of people that are sitting in the church, a number of Hebrews in their background that are coming to church. They've been born again, but they're wanting to go back to the good old days. The good old days when they used to take the animals for sacrifices. The good old days when they had to travel uh, two or three times a year down to Jerusalem to make temple sacrifice instead of meeting in the church body. They They had to make these trips that would take weeks and then would cost a lot. And they had to go down there and go through all that ritualism. And they had to make sure that they kept the rabbi happy with them. And if the rabbi ever got mad, he would take away some of their privileges. And they had to keep all those rules. Like, ladies, one of the rules that the Jews had is you could not look in a mirror on a Sabbath day. Okay? One of the reasons was if you looked in the mirror and saw gray hair, you'd be tempted to pluck it. And therefore, the, it was against the law in the New Testament to look in a mirror for a woman on a Sabbath day, lest she pluck the hair and start practicing beautician work. And so you had all those different rules. You had to be ever so careful. You couldn't drag a piece of furniture across the floor because if you drug it across your dirt floor, if it dug up the ground at all, you were plowing. So all those rules you have to be aware of. You have to be aware of the rule in the New Testament that if your child broke their arm, you cannot treat it unless there's bleeding. Okay? You had to just leave it because otherwise you were practicing medicine on the Sabbath day. Okay, there's all kinds of rules and regulations. Well, some of the people that were gathered in the church with Jewish background, they wanted to go back to those things. They were tempted. They were saying they were the good old days when things were less complicated. And the reason they're saying that is because now that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're getting a reaction from other people. 
They're getting a reaction from their family and friends, some of them Jewish in background, some of them the neighbors in the community they lived, and they're starting to persecute them. They're starting to threaten them. And so they're looking and saying it was easier just to go to the temple, go to the sad, the synagogue, and nobody bothered us. We did our own thing. But now, because we're believing in Jesus Christ, we're professing he is the Son of God. People are angry. We're starting to get persecution. Some of the emperors are starting to initiate some of those ten different series of persecutions that will be in the first 300 years. And so some of them are starting to say, we want to walk away from Jesus Christ and go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is writing with this in mind. He is writing to them and saying, you need Christ. You need somebody so that when you stand before God and the great accuser accuses you of the sins that you and I have done, that there is somebody defending us. And so he has the entire book of Hebrews written with this idea. You ought to remain loyal to Jesus Christ because he is better than the good old days. He is the best thing for you. He is far better than that temple worship. Far better than those sacrificing of those animals. Far better than all those rules he had to keep. And what he does is in the chapters 9 and 10, he elaborates on how great Jesus is. Just, let's just highlight a couple things. He's talking in chapter 9 as we put up on the board. Look down to verse 11 in chapter 9. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly one that was destroyed multiple times, but the indestructible tabernacle of God. He mentions it going down to verse 23 again, where he says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into a holy place made with hands, that is that tabernacle where they had that one most inward room called the Holy of Holies. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but Christ is into the heavenly holies itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so he talks about Jesus providing and ministering in a better place than the temple, the temple that they had at that time. Jesus provides a better, better forgiveness. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. Neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the heaven holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of the bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. He goes on he talks about how he got a better covenant, a better deal by chapter, uh, chapter 9 verses 15 to 22. He says for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant that by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For the, where there is a will, he says from somebody who has passed away, there must also be of necessity the death of that person who made the will. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while they live. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, etc., etc. Saying in verse 20, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined us to. Moreover he sprinkled the blood both with the tabernacle and the vessels. And almost all things 
things are by the blood, uh, are by the law, purged with blood and without shedding of blood. But he goes on and says, but Jesus provided a much better deal by putting his blood as the signing of this covenant. He's a better sacrifice. Better than the animal sacrifices, which he mentions in chapters 9, verse 23, down through verse 28. And in fact, chapter 10 develops that whole idea. Chapter 10, he makes a comparison between you and I going to the worship center with a oxen, with a goat, with a sheep, or Jesus Christ being the sacrifice for our sin. And he talks about it, makes a comparison. Look at how chapter 10 begins, where he starts talking. He says, for the law was a shadow of the good things to come, not of the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year after year continually make the comers or those sacrificers unto a perfect individual. For then would they not cease to be offered because that the worshipers were once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is still an ongoing remembrance again made of every sin. For it is not possible that the blood of the bulls and of goats should take away our sins. Wherefore when he come, came, comes into the world he said, sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. And Jesus responded and said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to do your will, O God. Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin you would not. Neither had pleasure in them which were offered by the law. Lo, I come to do your will, Jesus said. He takes away the first that he may establish the second covenant. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the very same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them which are sanctified. What's he saying? He is saying that the animal sacrifice was only a picture. It was only a, a symbol where Jesus was the very image. He is saying that they were bodies of mere animals given for sin. But Jesus Christ gave the perfect body, the sinless body for our sacrifice. He's saying that those sacrifices that are done by the priests that were still going on at the time of this writing, he's saying they are done over and over and over and over and over again because they're they don't take away the sin. But Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was once for all. When he made the complete sacrifice, then it was done and it was permanent where that system is temporary. The sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary for our sins was permanent. Where that sacrifice is done by priests every single day, doing them over and over and over again. He said Jesus Christ completed the sacrifice once and for all to the point that he was able to sit down. His job is done. How much better we have it in Christ. There they had many, many priests that had to do it. And they couldn't even complete the sacrifice, sacrificial system that never even covered all the sin. But Jesus, he did it all by himself. How much better he is. 
for a priest than those that you want to go back to. He goes on, he says, they, have, they produced no lasting change in the worshiper. All that ritualism just was ritual. It didn't really change the individual. But Jesus Christ, the, the worshiper was perfected. He mentioned it where we read twice, where they are matured, where they are brought to a point where they can overcome their sin. He talks about how the animals were under an old system, that ancient system, but Jesus Christ brought in the new, the better covenant. They talk about how the sins can't even be removed. They're not even taken away. They're just covered. They're like the credit card payment. That still requires a payment later on. That's all the animal sacrifice was. It was just a temporary uh, uh, payment to just cover it, but still the payment had to be made, and it was made in Jesus Christ. The absolute full payment, where there it is, where he is able to call out, it is finished, it is done, it is completed. It removes sin for good. And those of us who come to Jesus Christ and ask him to be our Savior, he says, your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. How much better we have it in Christ who removes the, 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 mem- the guilt of our sin from the mind of God where these animal sacrifices, they couldn't do it at all. They were just put on hold until there was the ultimate payment. Hey, listen, the bottom line is this. He's writing to the Hebrews and he's saying, no matter how many sacrifices you make, no matter how many animals, it makes no difference. Those animals were worth zero spiritually. And even though by the time Jesus comes on at Passover, they would sacrifice up to 300,000 lambs in one day to the point that the blood was flowing down into the river below the city. 300,000 times zero is still zero. It could not perfect the people. You and I are so much better with Jesus Christ that He is the one. He is our Savior. He is the one that gets us to heaven. That's what Hebrews is all about. How great Jesus is. How awesome and amazing He is. How wonderful He is to give His life for you and I to have eternal life. For you and I to accept His gift no longer have to go back to the rituals. No longer have to keep all the rules. No longer have to bring an animal for a sacrifice. We just come in and worship him because he gave his life for us. And all we need to do is realize that we are sinners, that he died for us, and as a result we accept his payment, his gift of eternal life by faith. And we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come unto the Father but by him. We come to a point where we realize that as sinners, we can't merit heaven. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't get baptized or catechized enough times to take away our sins because we as sinners need somebody who was sinless to take our place. And that the sinless one, Jesus Christ, gave his life so that you and I can have complete, total forgiveness of all sins past, present, and future. And we need to, by faith, Come before him and say, I believe what you have done was done for me. I want you to apply that purchased sacrifice, that, per- that sacrifice that you purchased of forgiveness, I want you to apply it to my life. Give me total forgiveness. Give me eternal life. And we come by faith. Not by works, not by good deeds, but we come by faith 
in believing what Jesus has done and ask him to be our savior. There's a missionary, John Patton, who worked in New Hebrides in that region of the world in the South Highlands. And when he was translating amongst the people which he had a tremendous ministry, working with a number of people, the aborigines in that area, some were cannibals, he not only led many to the Lord, but he also translated the Bible into their dialect. But there was one word he had trouble with. He could not find a word in their language for faith. For faith. Putting faith in Jesus Christ. And he said one day he was working hard and one of his workers who worked for him, one of the native folk came in and was very tired from working out in the fields and he sat down in the chair next to Patton and when he sat down he threw himself into the chair and just, <sighs> Patton asked me, he said, what did you just do? I just sat in the chair. No, what do you call that? Tell me in your tongue, what does that mean to just put yourself totally in that chair and to rest completely in it? That's the word he used for faith in their translation. Where you and I come and say, it's nothing of me, I just totally relax and rest and rely upon the work of Jesus Christ. That's faith. That's how we get to heaven. Some of us, like myself, grew up in a church that said you have to be baptized, you have to keep so many good commands, you have to do this, that, or the other thing, and it's not of works lest any man should boast. Salvation is by faith. It's a work of grace that we accept just freely by just believing that he and he alone can give us forgiveness. We call upon him and believe in him, and he gives us eternal life. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall shall be saved. And so he's talking about why, why would you turn away from this Jesus? After all that he's done, why would you go back to this other system? And so he's talking about that all the way through chapter 9, all the way through chapter 10, and then he gets to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter in the middle of chapter 10 is, okay, what do we do with it? He says twice in this text, okay, he says, having therefore, down in verse 19, and he mentions it again later on, he's the idea of since Jesus has done all this, okay, since Jesus has provided all this for you, and the provisions that he's talking about is through his sacrifice, through his death, through his resurrection, he gives you salvation, access into God's presence. Look at how he says that. He says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by, by a new and living way, which he has dedicated himself for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. He's giving us two benefits here. Because of what Christ has done, we can now come before God. We can come without fear. We don't have to work through a priest. We can come in faith to him and pray directly because his blood was the sacrifice that was needed to be able to approach God. And Jesus is working in that house of God. He is ministering. He is now the high priest that we come to. He is the one that will mediate for us because of those benefits. How does that affect us? You don't run away. You don't give up. You don't turn back. But he's going to give us some other things we need to do. But first of all, we need to pause. We need to think about the benefits we have in Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can picture it this way. 
There's this preacher who's, who I've met who is telling the story about how he and his ministry where he's at, every, uh, every summer he goes on mission trips for a couple, three, four weeks. And he was talking about the one mission trip that he was taking to South America. And on his way, he was with a missionary who was going to be his host, his interpreter. And as they were headed, they went to Miami. Stopped in Miami and they had a four, five, six hour layover in Miami. And he's thinking, oh man, it's late in the evening. We're going to have this layover before we head down into South America and into the Amazon area. And he says, sitting in this airport, he said, I've been traveling all this time and I'm really tired of the chairs that they have where you have to sleep for hours. I'm tired of the food, you know, sometimes through vending machines. And the missionary he was with who travels quite a bit, the missionary says, that's no problem. He says, I'm a member of the Admiral Club. What's the Admiral Club? Let me show you. Come with me. So the, the preacher walks with the missionary and they go into this lounge area that is this private lounge for people that have certain benefits and paid with their credit card and stuff like that, that they're part of this Admiral Club. He walked in, he said, man, they had some beds there. They had food and fruit and veggies, everything free. And it wasn't like the vending machine stuff. You could relax. You could kick up your feet. It was beautiful. He says, I just, I was so amazed but this Admiral Club and it was, it, was, it was the best five hours I've had he said in a long time it was so relaxing and so resting and so wonderful well he gets back after the trip and one of the things he tells the secretary is I want you to check what it costs to become a member of the Admiral Club because I'm, next time I'm traveling I'm going to take advantage of this so she was checking on things came back a few minutes later and she's kind of giggling and she says well pastor um it's not that expensive for you to join. Really? She says, well, actually, you already are a member of the Admiral Club. With the credit card that you have, one of the perks is you could have been going in that all this time for the last few years. He was kind of frustrated and upset and wanted to kick himself and his secretary and everybody else to get bothered because here he had this benefit and he wasn't taking advantage of it. That's something that he was suffering through on his travel that he didn't need to. You and I have benefits in Jesus Christ. Because he is better than that old sacrificial system, we have some benefits that we can go to God directly, we can speak to Jesus directly, and he challenges and says, hey, take advantage of these benefits. Take advantage of what I've provided for you. Since I'm in heaven and I've opened the way for you to get to God through my blood, through my sacrifice, here's what you need to do. And he gives us three commands. I'm going to make them sound like commands. He gives us three exhortations where he says, let us, let us, let us do something. Do what? Because of the benefits, here's our practice. Let us, number one, work at praying to Christ more. He says, okay, those of you who are believers, those of you who have called upon Christ, let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he mean by this? Okay, the people he's talking to is you and me. He's talking to believers. This is written when he says, let us. This is written by a believer who's an apostle writing to individuals who are struggling. And he's saying all of us, whether we are mature in the faith or we are immature in the faith, let us do something. Let us gather together and pray. Let us pray as individuals. Let us pray as a group. But let us incorporate into this idea of praying to Christ more than we've done in the past. He's talking in this text, as you go a little bit further, about the idea of, of going to him. Setting aside a time is his idea. Praying on a personal daily basis. Do you? 
Do you take advantage of praying together as a family? Do you take advantage of praying together with some friends, some relatives, some others that you are believers with that you can periodically get together and pray over issues? Do you take advantage of the opportunity that you can fast from a meal or from some sleep or from several meals or for a night of sleep and you can pray and ask God to bless in your life? Can you, can you see in your life where you are taking opportunities to pray instead of fretting, instead of panicking? Are you going to Him and praying? Do you join in when there is group prayer time set aside, whether here or at whatever church you're at, where you pray together and you go? Do you, do you say to your kids, I'm praying for you when they head off to school? Do you pray for wisdom and how to handle your finances, your family issues? Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray? It's a benefit that we have to enjoy the victories over sin and the battles that we have. Do you pray or do you get upset? Do you attack? Do you, do you accuse? We're supposed to be praying and praying and praying and praying some more. And he tells us, let us who are believers take advantage of what Jesus has provided, this benefit of prayer. By the way, when's it supposed to be done? Well, the idea is let us draw near over and over and over again. Not just once in a while, but make this a practice. Make this a habit in your life of going and responding in prayer. The idea is to do it now is the emphasis. Not sometime later. This week I had another experience of emphasizing now. I had another kidney stone attack on Thursday evening. Deb was gone. Tony was at home with me and he had just put the kids to bed. And I started feeling that pain coming on which is a, quite excruciating. And I remembered the last time I had a kidney stone attack. It was here at church and I had opted to wait to go to the hospital because there was a business meeting that needed to be taken care of and I was waiting for one of the assistants to show up so they could handle it and I could get out of here. And I waited for a period of time and by the time I got to the hospital they had to give me three shots of morphine to get it under control. So this time I was a little bit smarter. Not much, but a little bit smarter. So I had the attack starting on Thursday evening and I'm thinking I should get to the hospital quick. Deb's not here to drive me. Tony can't drive me. Preston's too young to drive me. He's only seven. So how do I get there? I'll drive myself. Okay? So I got in the car and I thought if I sing, it'll take care of it. So I'm singing. They must have heard me outside the car when I pulled up to one stop sign. They were looking at me. I was doing to God be the glory. Yeah. So we get to the hospital finally, which seemed like hours, that drive of one mile. And I get to the hospital, I walk in, and there's one gentleman in front of me. And this one gentleman is taking his time giving them the information, and I'm going, get moving, buddy, get moving, come on, come on, I don't see any blood, move it. So they finally get the information, and he sits down, and they get my information, they said, what's your name? It's Wayne. Do you have a last name? I can't remember. So we're, we're going through that whole thing. And then we get done. They said they'll be with you in just a moment. And I sat down over in the chair and they called that gentleman who was just before me. They called his name because he was first come, first serve. So he gets up and he says to the people there at the ER, he says, just a minute. My friend just texted me. He's outside. I need to talk to him for five minutes. No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm thinking, no, you don't. You don't have to talk to anybody. You go in there. You get your stuff done. Okay, because I want to get my stuff done. Move it, buddy. And the people who were there were very gracious. They said, fine, go and talk to him. I'm going, no, no, no. I'm watching him go out the door. Because in my mind, it was, deal with me now. Actually, deal with me 
15 minutes ago, okay, before I even got here. You should have been dealing with me. It was just that whole, that when, when you have a hurt, when do you want it addressed? Right away. He is writing to us and he's saying, you got aches and pains. Don't put this off. Don't say we can do it later. You want to get treatment from God Almighty right now. Let us draw near now, not later. Get moving on this. Why? How? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to come with a true heart. We're supposed to be sincere. We're supposed to be the real thing when we come in prayer. Not a make-believe, not a cover-up, but actually being the real thing, the real McCoy. We're not supposed to be like Simon, who the Samaritan, who when he saw what God was doing there in Samaria, he offered money because he was a sorcerer by trade and he wanted to get in on this believing. And it says he believed, but he wanted to be able to do the miracles they did. He wasn't genuine. He wasn't the real thing and they have to rebuke him because his idea of church was, how to make a scam here, how to make some money here, how to make a name here. And he says, no, no, that's not genuine. You come to God with a true heart. You come to God in full assurance, full confidence, fully persuaded that he is one that can answer you. You come with your heart sprinkled, with a clean conscience that is purity in your mind and in your spirit, not just in in what you think but how you think about others. In that attitude that you have towards other people, and not just in your thought life, you come with a body wash. Now, I understand some of you have commentary in your Bible that says body washed is talking about being baptized. No, it's not. No more than your hearts are, are sprinkled physically. It's a spiritual sprinkling. Your bodies are washed spiritually. It's the idea that what you do is you and I come before God with pure minds, pure hearts, clean hearts, clean minds, and clean activity. That it's not just what we are thinking, but it is what we are doing. Our attitude and our actions are pure before God. And if they're not, we make confession first of all. But then we come to Him, and we come and we pray, and we ask Him to bless and to take care of these these areas of concern we have. The bottom line is this. We as a church, if we are going to be united, as united we stand, we've got to pray more. We've got to have more focus where we're praying together. That it's not just intentions of having prayer time or determination that you say, I hope they have a prayer time. I want them to have a prayer time. And then you don't show up. It's in action and it's indeed that we are supposed to be focused on praying together more and more. Not in the future, but right now. Not in this idea of saying, okay, we can get together and we can live however we want during the week. As long as we come in and we pray together, everything's okay. Not true. Prayer is no cover-up, is no excuse for a sinful lifestyle, for an ungodly lifestyle. We come before God with a clean heart, with clean hands. We come before Him not to impress others, not to, not to be pharisaical to say, hey, watch this lengthy prayer I can make. Whoa, aren't you impressed? No, we come. We come not because we want others to look and say, well, I showed up. We come because we have a heart's yearning and desire that we need to pray more. And God wants us to pray more. We come before him without hypocrisy, without play acting. We're the real thing when we pray. We're not make-believe. We're not like this group of young people that this king, this emperor in the east, there's a legend that goes about how he was going to choose a successor. He wasn't going to give it to his sons because they weren't 
character qualified. So he got all the young people in the nobility group together and he said, one of you is going to become the new emperor and I'm going to change the way we do succession. I am going to give you all a test. And in one year from now you're going to come back with what you have as a result of this test and we're going to see who is going to be named emperor. He gave every one of those young people a seed. And he told them to go, plant it, water it, take care of it, and in one year you bring back to me what it grew and we'll see who has the best product at the end of the year. Well, Ling was one of those young people that the others made fun of, but he was there in the crowd. He got his seed. He took it home. He told his mom, what's the use? I never you know, do well in anything. And she says, yes, you will. The king gave it to you. Just do your very best. So he watered it. He talked to the seed. He kept track of it. And after a few days, nothing. He kept on watering it, talking to it, putting out in sunshine. And after a few weeks, nothing. He heard the others talking about it there at the community well that they were starting to see seeds who were starting to sprout and some were getting all kinds of different things. And over the weeks and the months, some were bragging about how they have a tree or they have a bush or they have flowers. And then by the year's end, some of them were having a harvest even of some of the, some of the vegetables or the fruits that were growing. And the day came, they all came before the emperor. And there they were, some of them with fabulous different types of, of growth out of the different pots, and here's was Ling's. Ling, the young man, had absolutely nothing. His was the only barren one. The emperor comes into the room, and they're all excited, and he starts walking past. And he comes to Ling's, and he yells out, Whose is this? And Ling responds, and he says, What's your name? And all are giggling. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him because his has nothing. And he finds out the young man's name is Ling, and he said, Ling, come with me. They all thought he was in big trouble. He brings him up on the step, and he says, Behold, your new emperor. They're shocked. How, he had absolutely nothing. And the king explained, the emperor explained, he said, I had boiled all of your seeds. None of you should have had anything. You are all trying to deceive me. He's the only one who is honest enough to say it didn't work. He's the only honest and wise enough person. He becomes the new king. You see, we're not supposed to come here and say, oh God, look at all this. We're supposed to come before God with open arms and hearts. Here's what we are, God. Here's what we are. Warts and all, God, here's what we are. We come before him when we pray and God blesses when we pray that way. You and I need to be building unity in our homes, building unities in this church body, building unity within the family by praying more and more. But he goes on and he says there's a second let us in this verse. Look at the next one in this passage. The second one is very simple. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promise. This second whole, uh, let us is this idea of proclaiming Christ more. We should pray to Christ more. We should proclaim Christ more. How do I get that out of this text? Well, watch. Let us, another statement that's talking to you and me, young, old, strong, weak, that we're supposed to hold fast. The idea is that we grip it tightly. Do not let this escape. Do not let this get away from us, our profession, what we publicly declare about Jesus Christ what we say about Jesus Christ, what we, what we invite others to hear about Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be professing him without wavering because he is faithful. We're not supposed to give up because, and, and not confess, confess our faith in Christ because of persecution, because of attacks, because of mockery that's coming by the old 
ways of life. But rather we're supposed to remember He is faithful. We're to practice what we preach. We're to be individuals who don't move in confidence in our God. We're to be individuals who that we believe God and take Him at His word. It's like the dad who a number of years ago, he gave the story about how he was downtown New York City and he had his boy with him, dropped him off for music lessons and he had to go on to make some, some different errands. He told the boy, he says, I'll be back in, a, in, in about an hour or so and get you, just wait here. If I don't get back, which I should be back, it'll be before you're done, but otherwise just wait here. He went away, the car broke down. It took several hours before he could get back to where the boy was. He comes down to the, to the store and he sees his boy just standing in that spot right in front of the music store where the lessons were, standing there without, without any kind of worry, unfazed. He went, ran up, gave the boy a hug and said, I'm so glad you stood here. And the boy said, why are you so surprised? You told me to stay here. But weren't you worried that I didn't come back when I said I would? He said, but dad, you told me you'd come back. I believed that you would come back. I had no doubt. Do you have doubt that when God says that I will strengthen you, I will carry you through every trial, I never give you anything that you are, uh, that you are not able to handle, I will be with you to the end, I will forgive you, I will use your witness, I will bless you financially, I will meet your needs. That's what he's talking about in this passage. Don't give up. Hold your confidence, but make sure you proclaim your faith in Christ. Share it with others. Let others know the Christ that you serve, how great he is, how good he is, how amazing he is. We're supposed to be working as a team to share the gospel. That's what he's telling us in this text. We're to be getting out that gospel more and more. The questions that you and I have to ask is, do you do it? Do I do it? Do we regularly walk out of here with tracks in our pocket? to share the faith? Do we invite people to come and hear the Word of God? Do you, at times, well, let's rephrase that, have you at work, at school, stopped and looked around and said, okay, during this past month, who around here have I met that needs the gospel? Have you planned some way about going about and telling them about Jesus Christ? This is what he's challenging us to do with all the privileges we have, not to keep it to ourselves, but to improve our ability to share the truth, to give out the Word of God. And you and I have that opportunity. We can do that now. We can learn more Scripture. We can learn how to encourage one another. Pastor Travis put together that ministry called Reach, which is designed to be able to help you in knowing the verses, knowing what to say, when to say it. Designed to be able to help you to be an encouragement one to another, to pray with one another, to become teamwork, uh, teammates in this effort of giving out the gospel. Are you taking advantage of it? Or is it one of those things that you just say, well, that's what the others are supposed to do. No, no, no. The text says, let us get involved with all of us. Get involved with getting out the gospel, sharing the word of God. He commands us to pray more to Jesus Christ. He commands us to proclaim more about Jesus Christ. Then he gives a third let us because of the privileges we have. He says, let us do one other thing. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works while not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The idea is to provoke Christians more. Now, some of us are really good at provoking people in a negative way. That's not what he's saying. In this text, he's saying again, let us, let us, all of us work at something. Let us work together to this activity of provoking one another. The word provoke means to stir up. 
It means to infuse in somebody, to get others excited about something. It's to the idea of to incite. I've been accused when I was in high school of inciting a riot. I never did. It was somebody else's fault. But the whole idea is to just encourage people, to get them fired up, to get them to want to do, you know, go and, and do whatever it is. He's saying this is what we're to be doing. This gathering that we do here is not about just you and me getting something out of it, but you and me giving to others who are here. That's what this is all about. Giving to others an enthusiasm and encouragement and excitement to serve Jesus Christ more and more. To provoke people to do more love, more good works. To have in their lives the thoughts and the actions that are honoring to Jesus Christ. To go and to put out of our way, to go out of our way, to try to encourage each other to be able to portray the love of Christ by by which all men will know we are his disciples. He is saying in this text, we have the ability to impact one another and help one another more and more to loving good works. Not only do we have the ability, we have the responsibility that we, when we gather, are supposed to be helping each other spiritually to do what is right, to be what is right, to work at provoking. How do you do that? Well, you don't forsake the assembling. It can't be done when you're not here. It can't be done by excluding yourself from a gathering of believers. You do it by physically engaging one another, and when you're engaged with one another, you exhort one another. That is the verbal aspect. So physically and verbally, we interact with one another to provoke each other to do what is right. In other words, gathering together as a group of believers is assumed by God. It's not commanded in this text. God says, don't stop doing this. Don't stop gathering together on a regular basis basis to encourage each other. He is saying in this text that you and I, by physically gathering and interacting with one another, this is essential to provoking to good works. It takes more than just showing up and walking out. It requires that we do some interaction with one another. By the way, this text very clearly says to you and me the cyber church idea, that I go to church by, by listening to the radio. I go to church by watching TV. It is insufficient. It is not God's design. Now, I'm not saying you can't get benefit if you're physically laid up at home, but that is not God's design for you to be interacting with people by sitting at home by yourself and watching TV or the computer screen. You're supposed to be physically, verbally interacting with other Christians to provoke to good work. He says this idea of coming to church, it's not where you isolate and never have any, any interaction. Come in and go out quickly. That's not God's design. It's for you to interact with one another. The church gathering concept is for you and I to give, not to get. We're to give to one another incentive, excitement, enthusiasm for serving Jesus Christ. That means part of our conversation should be to provoke one another to good works. I understand. I want to talk about the Vikings too. I know you all do, okay, and how good their team is this year. I want to talk about the sports. But first and foremost, we're supposed to be talking about our prayer, our service, our serving Jesus Christ, and how we can encourage each other in that regard. We talk about the shopping deals. We talk about the the good garage sale deals. We can talk about this, that, and the other thing. There's nothing sinfully wrong about that. But that isn't all that we're supposed to be focusing on when we gather for fellowship. We're to be inciting, inviting, encouraging one another to love and to good works. That means for me that I'm not supposed to be preaching in such a way that makes you feel good. 
I'm supposed to be preaching in such a way that I excite you or enthuse you or provoke you to improve. I'm not supposed to be standing up here and just saying, you're doing great, which you are. You're doing great, you're doing good, and just keep on doing what... I'm supposed to provoke you to be thinking about how you can improve, how you can do better in your prayer life, how you can do better in your love life, how you can do better in your, in your service for one another, how you can make more of an impact in witnessing. I can stand here and tell you how great you have done in the past, but my job in the present is to say, keep it up, keep it up, do some more. Keep it up. Why? Because that's what this text is saying, that we're supposed to be focusing on encouraging one another and exciting and, and, and getting others enthusiastic and provoking them to do better for Christ than what they've done in the past. Not to become content and complacent or apathetic, but to be challenged to say, how can I serve Christ more? The point that we're supposed to be doing in this text is we're to be gathering on a regular basis and provoking one another over and over and over again, especially as we see the day approaching. What's the day approaching? There's two different ideas in this text. Authors and scholars say it could be that he's talking to Jews and he's saying, as you see the end of your Judaism coming. In 70 AD, which is about six years after this book is written, the, the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They are already starting to be coming under uh, the attacks of Rome at this time, where they are showing signs of fomenting rebellion. And he's saying, you're going to see your homeland destroyed. You're going to see your country destroyed. You're going to see the Israelites taken out of the land, and they won't be there for generations and generations from 70 AD until 1948. Is that the day that he's talking about? I don't know. That day that it could be, some say, that's what he's talking about. You who are Jewish in background, you remain faithful to Christ even when you see the downfall of all your Jewishness. That's going to be gone here by 70 AD. Or, and I'm inclined to think this, he's talking about another day. He's talking about a day that, that is a day that applies to every one of us, Jew, Jew or Gentile. It is the day of Jesus Christ returning. When we look and we see by the signs going on around us, we cannot determine, we cannot say the world was going to end two weeks ago. How foolish. We're not supposed to give times. We're not supposed to set dates. But can we look in a general sense and say we are living in the latter days? That things are getting worse and worse? And that, Lord Jesus, you've got to be coming back quickly. As we look and see how the world is getting worse and we look and approach the last days, we're supposed to serve Christ more and more. We're not supposed to isolate from the world and run up into the Poconos and hide away, but rather we're to keep our gathering. We're to gather and encourage to get the gospel out to work at love and good works. We're to be gathering to encourage one another and so much the more as we see the end approaching, we're supposed to be given to the idea of working together, laboring together, being a team together. He is telling us that we're supposed to be involved in these good works. What are they? Well, three of them in the passage, praying, proclaiming Christ, loving Christians more and more. How simple working at forgiving, working at visiting the elderly, the shut-ins, work at assisting those with burdens. How, how simple to understand ministering, helping and assisting, going to those who are struggling and helping to, to encourage as well as to rebuke where it's needed. He is saying in this text, calling the believers and saying, I'm included. Let us get on the ball with all that Christ has given us. Don't just sit here. Don't just stand here and debate how good or how bad Christianity is. Look at the benefits you have in Christ and let it flow down into your feet. Pray. 
proclaim Christ, provoke one another, give out the word. Some of you have read about this author, read his books, Josh McDowell. I'm sure you've read some of his, his books that are talking about the, the beliefs of, G, of Jesus Christ, the apologetics. Tremendous author. He grew up in a really, really, really sad home. His home, his father was an alcoholic, very abusive to him and his mom. In fact, he said that there was days he'd come home from high school and he'd find his mom beaten up out in the barn, in the manure pile. She couldn't move. She was so badly beaten by the father. There was times, he said, my mother, I'd come home and she'd be falling down the basement stairs. She couldn't get up because he beat her so badly and pushed her down the steps. He said, there came to a point where I hated this man. I absolutely despised my father. He said, I would try to defend my mother, but I was still small, couldn't do certain things. But sometimes when my dad got drunk, we would tie him up. We'd put him out in the silo until he would get over his drunkenness. He says, in fact, there was times my mom, mom would help me. We would tie him up and put him in the back of the car and put it around behind the barn, and we'd tell people he's not here, he's gone for a few days. He said, I hated the man, just hated the man, despised him. And he said, the day came, I went off to college, and it was the grand day to get away from that home. I felt for my mom, but I get away from home. And I go to college, and I hear about Jesus Christ. And in this message that I hear about Jesus Christ, it talks about forgiving people. There is nothing I want to do with forgiveness. I am not forgiving my father. I do not want to hear any more about Jesus because I don't want to forgive. I don't want to love that way. So he walked away from the gospel until the following year, his sophomore year, he's back at the college, and he's confronted once again with the message that Jesus Christ is the best. And he hears this message about Jesus being the means of salvation, and he responds. As he responds and asks Christ to be his Savior, he knows immediately one of the sins that he needs forgiveness from is bitterness towards his dad. So as he starts growing in the Lord and does Bible study with others, he's asking them to help him, to provoke him to good works so that he can proclaim the gospel to his father. So they form a prayer group. And he says through that sophomore year, they're praying together. Their friends are trying to help me to be able to be more gracious and loving towards my father. They're challenging me, and they're praying for me. They're telling me I need to witness to my father. He says, I didn't want to. I didn't want to, and I have an auto accident. He has an auto accident where he's laid up for several weeks. He's in traction, and they can't go back to school, so he has to go back home. So he's back home for a few weeks in recuperation in bed, totally at the mercy of his parents. And he says that one day he was in bed sitting there, and he had been praying. He knew that he needed to have a change of attitude towards his dad. And he said he, he could tell it was working through the prayers. And he could tell that he started to speak more gracious to his father. And he said one day he said to his dad, Dad, I love you. For the first time he could remember, he said, Dad, I love you. Dad walked away, stormed out of the room, went and got drunk. A few days later, he says, Dad came back in the room and standing there, and he says, Son, I have a question for you. How is it that you could say to me, you love me? Josh said, I had 45 minutes to share with my father, Jesus Christ. How Jesus had changed me and given me love. How Jesus had told me to forgive. My friends were praying and all that. His dad kneels down by his bed, prays and asks to be saved. The story is recorded in his book called Resurrection Father. How his own dad gets saved. Why? Because he prayed. Because he was provoked to love. Because he wanted to proclaim Christ. 
God can use you in the same way if you say, let me, not just let us, let me be more in prayer, proclaiming Christ, being provoked to love and to good works, and watch what God can do in your heart. That ministry of Jesus is phenomenal. It is amazing. Don't let it be wasted in your life. Let him use you. Let him bless you. Let him work in your heart.